The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We were there, we were close, and all that does to me is make me hungrier to, to get back. And, and, and that's about the last time you'll hear me say, get back, because what you're going to say, you're going to hear me say is what? I'm going to do it one day at a time, one day at a time, one day at a time, because that's the right mindset. But that doesn't affect, that doesn't stop you from when you, when you see the red and yellow confetti far, or you have a piece of it stuck on your damn shirt, right? Uh, that, you don't think to yourself, I, I got to do everything I can do to help our, our guys get back to this moment. Thrill of victory, agony of defeat. That's the other side of it. When someone wins a Super Bowl, guess what? Someone loses one. And it provides motivation. But as I was listening to Nick Sirianni say those words, I couldn't help but think back to Kyle Shanahan a few years ago who wanted to fast forward to the moment up 10 with seven minutes left. It ain't that easy. We see how hard it is. Now, it was easier for the Eagles than it was for other teams to get there. But still... It's not easy to get close to the top of the mountain, and it's very difficult to plant that flag at the very top. We're going to be talking about what the Eagles had to say yesterday and much more over the course of the next two hours. The show is PFT Live. Peter King back in the building. This is the last show for 10 days. I'm sorry. Please direct all your complaints to Peter King, not me. I get enough of them. I'll give you his email address. He makes it available in his column. Go look it up. Complain to him, not me, even though he has nothing to do with it. I would just rather he get the complaints for a change. Hello, Peter. Mike, what are you going to be doing in your little time away? Well, the... Broader business never sleeps. ProFootballTalk.com will continue to crank, and I'll probably do some videos in the afternoons. We just started this tradition last year. I'm not going anywhere. Last year, when I got back from L.A., 
Number one, I swore I was never going to travel again. But number two, I was so fried I needed to go somewhere else. So I quickly traveled again. My wife and I went away for a few days. Sims typically goes out of the country the week after the week after the Super Bowl. And it would be a stream of guest co-hosts for the week. And I had stuck to the no days off thing. Last year, I decided to hell with that. I'm going to take the week. This year, I'm reluctantly doing it because I'm not going anywhere. But I'll just sleep a little bit more in the morning instead of in the afternoon. Because usually it's four to five hours at night, one to two in the afternoon. Hopefully I'll get my six hours at night and I won't need to take a nap in the afternoon, but I probably will anyway. That's my week. Uh, hey, listen, I'm a huge nap person. I, you know, I, I can't do without my nap. You know, at the Super Bowl, I never took a nap. And every night I said, why is it 8.30 and I want to go to bed? But anyway... uh I become a big napper, and I love it, and uh, I'm glad you are also a nap devotee. Yeah, I now I don't like waking up from the nap because it's like yeah. morning all over again, and you have to get the cobwebs out for five minutes, but I get to a point early mid-afternoon where I can just feel the shades coming down, and it drives my wife crazy because she can't sleep when it's daylight. She can't do it. I could fall asleep anywhere. I could fall asleep in the last row of a roller coaster while it's moving. And, uh, yeah, I go – and I fall asleep much faster in the afternoon than I do at night. Maybe the nap has something to do with it. But when it's time for my nap, I mean, I am down and I am out in less than two minutes. Wow. I can't do it that fast, but I love the nap. And, uh, you know, speaking of naps – I still am curious to know why in the world didn't the Philadelphia secondary, why were they napping, caught napping on the Kadarius, Tony, and Sky Moore touchdowns? And, I mean, why in the world did they not cover those two guys? It's the great mystery of American football, 2023. And I'm, st- I'm going to be wondering it for a long time. Oh, we're going to be talking about that later in the program. I'm sure the Eagles are going to be wondering it, thinking about it, and trying to fix it in this offseason. That was one of the themes leading into the Super Bowl. Chris Sims and I had a segment, and I had nothing to do with it. I just show up, and the rundown's in there. But the producers did a great job of crafting this package of plays based upon the Eagles going into disarray when guys go in motion, communication issues, execution issues, and the Chiefs took full advantage of it. We've got that coming up later in the program based upon your always excellent right after the Super Bowl effort to diagnose a play that was critical to the game. And after that corndog play happened, we didn't know the name of it at the time. You and I looked at each other in the press box and it was like, well, that, that, may, that may be the play. That may be the one that gets the focus after the game when Kadarius Tony does the 180 and is wide ass open, as Bruce Arians would say, for the touchdown that put the Chiefs ahead. But before we bask further in the Chiefs' victory, it was end-of-season press conference day for the Eagles. Nick Sirianni, the head coach, and Howie Roseman, the GM, elbow-to-elbow answering questions. And, Peter, this is one that's come up in the aftermath of the game. I was surprised, frankly, when Sirianni sent the field goal unit out up three after the Chiefs had trimmed the margin from 10. It was fourth and six from the 15. I was a little surprised when he punted on fourth and three 
down one later in the half. This is a guy who has made the unconventional conventional. He's been very aggressive when it comes to going forward on fourth down. Here he is from yesterday talking about his uncharacteristically conservative decision-making in the second half of Super Bowl 57. Yeah, I think if um, – I know I've been uh, aggressive all year going for I've really trust our guys in, in scenarios. I think fourth and three on your own 30 – what was it? 33. Yeah, I think you get 32 out of 32 NFL coaches saying they punt that ball every time. 32 out of 32. The other one, the fourth and six, seven, fourth and seven, actually it was, fourth and seven at the 20. Yeah, that that isn't in my mindset either, um, especially, you know, we're up three, going to go up six. That's not my mindset. Now, did I feel like when Kansas City came down and scored, um, you know, we were up 10, Kansas City came down and scored, and I said to myself before the drive, we got to go score here, you know, just to, you know, in a touchdown. But fourth and six right there, um, that's not my mindset either. I, but he's proven time and again it is his mindset. And I just don't think you can pick and choose when you're going to be aggressive. That said, I like it when it's unpredictable. This wasn't a conscious effort to be unpredictable. This was turtle head in the shell with the season on the line. You believe in your offense. You trust it to get especially three yards. Just line them up in the rugby mall and push it all forward. We saw how that works. You can get three yards at any play with that damn thing. But even fourth and six, when you're up three, and Peter, what really reinforced it for me, I don't know if you saw A.J. Brown, the Eagles receiver, on locker clean-out day, said in his mind and really in his gut, he feared they were going to lose the game when they went up six. And that was kind of that awakening of, wait a minute, the Chiefs are only down six points late in the third quarter of the Super Bowl? Are you kidding me? They can go take this thing. And I'm sure A.J. Brown wasn't the only one who thought that. So both of those decisions surprised me because of what we're used to seeing from Sirianni. All right, so the world was outraged, absolutely outraged, when Brandon Staley on fourth and one from his own 18 went for it. Uh, I think against the Raiders, right, uh, last year. And so now the world is outraged, with, you know, saying that's an irresponsible call to go for it on fourth and one. Now, you know, 13 yards ahead, right, you're outraged or people are outraged that they don't go for it on fourth and three. I think that's – I don't want to say – if he had done it, I wouldn't have been shocked. But I have zero problem with the punting. Because, Mike, you say that absolutely, unequivocally, you're going to get, you're going to convert on fourth and three with the rugby scrum. I'm not sure about that. Fourth and one is one thing with the rugby scrum. I was, but I would I was, bet. I was, I was I would exaggerating. Bet. Yeah. Here's what I would bet. I would bet that. You know, so Philadelphia finished the year 34 out of 38 going for it on fourth down or going for it, you know, on fourth down. Uh, Wait a minute. 34 out of 38 on the rugby scrums. 34 to 38 in the rugby scrums. Here's my question. And I didn't know it was going to come up in this way or else I would have asked somebody the question who could have told me. But how many times was it fourth and three or more doing that? 
in my opinion, on fourth and three, they would not have run the rugby scrum. You know, on fourth and three, I believe they would have run a play. And, you know, fourth and one and a half or less, you run the rugby scrum. But fourth and three, I think you've got to run a play. And and look, whatever the decision is, I understand why people think that it is a questionable decision. But I also say this. If uh, Jalen Hurts had taken the snap and had tried to run around left end or run around right end and he got stopped after a gain of two and Kansas City took the ball and went down and scored the go-ahead touchdown, or are they actually the, not the go-ahead touchdown because they were up by a point, but scoring the touchdown that would put them up by eight points, uh, in my opinion, I think Sirianni would have gotten roasted because going for it on fourth and three from your own 32, I'm not sure it's 32 for 32, but it's darn close to that. And, Look, I'd like to think that fans and media have evolved to the point where they understand the reasoning. And Sirianni doesn't come off as reckless and just going for it all the time, but he does come off as aggressive. And I think one of the reasons why Brandon Staley gets roasted for going for it on fourth down is it fails so often. You better have plays ready to go to make it work. And the way the Eagles were moving the ball throughout the game, I wasn't pessimistic they couldn't come up with three yards now the fourth and six is a different animal altogether and it's not like you can simulate that moment where you're up three points in the Super Bowl you should have been up maybe 17 maybe 21 going into halftime and it just again this is something that there isn't an analytical formula for the idea that you give the boxer who's on the mat and who has just struggled to his feet with the standing eight count, you've given him a sense he can still win the fight. And and that doesn't happen very often, and it's a unique situation. But when A.J. Brown said that, that's what underscored it for me because I remember seeing the bodies come out onto the field, crossing the white stripe out for the field goal thinking, why isn't he going for it? He's only up three. You want to reestablish a 10-point lead if you can. This long drive, three points is unsatisfying. This is more gut feel than it is analytics, but this whole analytics explosion of the past 10 years has caused people to think that way. And Peter, in the future, if someone does this and goes for it fourth and three on their own 32 down one point in the fourth quarter, third quarter, whatever it was, fourth quarter, obviously, and it fails, I'll be the first one to say, yeah, but if they punted, they may have given up a 65-yard return because that's what happened. That's one of the outcomes when you choose to punt. Well, you, know, you could snap it over the guy's head. It could be blocked. Those are all the various things that go into the formulas and just into the reality. But I, I, I've come around on this idea of accepting that you can treat all territory as four-down territory. What used to be unconventional has become conventional. And it makes for a more exciting game when you lean into it and embrace it. And in hindsight, it makes for an easier way for the Chiefs to win the game because they did punt, and Kadarius Tony did that. And when he broke around to the right, I thought he was going to score. It's amazing to put the punter on his ass 
And uh, they scored, obviously, three plays later on Corndog Part 2, even though it really wasn't Corndog Part 2. It looked a lot like it. So I, I just think this is one of those circumstances that, that I think every coach should be studying those two sequences and why it happened, how it happened. Would you really have gone for it? Would you have kicked a field goal? Would you have punted? I just think it's, it's, it's grist for strategic thinking by every coach, every GM, everyone in a position to engage in that thought with every NFL team. You know, I looked this up yesterday, Mike, and, you know, the one thing about, I don't even want to call it revisionist history, but during the course of the year, Kansas City uh, entering that last punt by uh, Aaron Sipos, whatever, however you pronounce his name, of Philadelphia. You know, during the course of the year, <clears throat> Kansas City <clears throat> had received 57 punts during the course of the year, or that was the 57th punt. And their longest return to that point was 29 yards. And so I think it is easy to say, oh, my God, should have kicked it out of bounds, should have done this, should have done that. But I'll say two things. That was an absolutely horse crap punt by Aaron Sipos. I mean, you're playing in the Super Bowl and you just wing ding a punt you know, it, it, it was like, it was a it was a high school punt. It was a high school punt. So I'm sure one of the things that look and and it, it, the one thing that Nick Sirianni did yesterday is he did a very good job of not throwing a soul under the bus. Okay, and you know, but he has to be thinking walking off the field after the game. Why didn't I have Brett Kern active for this game? You know, because. You know, Brett Kern is a far more veteran punter, in my opinion. You know, a veteran punter in a game like that, he's played in big games, big playoff games. Okay? And and again, look, whatever. All I know is that the punt itself contributed hugely to this. It had crap hang time and crap distance. So, you know, to me... I understand everybody is saying, oh, my God, why, why didn't you go for it on fourth and three? And, or you, and why didn't you kick it out of bounds? Kansas City had been a, a mediocre punt return team all year. So what are you scared of? And, of course, Kadarius Toney is their game breaker to put back there. But I'm just saying, Mike, that, that every time you introduce a, well, they could have done this, you know, at some point, the players have to execute what they're supposed to execute. And the Eagles punter on that play didn't execute what he should have done. And that, to me, you know, you can, whatever, whoever you want to blame for it, those are the facts. So I don't go back to fourth and three and say, you've been risky all year. You should have gone for it. I would love to know if, and because I, I don't know the answer to this question. Did Nick Sirianni ever, from inside his 40-yard line, go for it on fourth and three during the year? If so, how many times? What was the situation? You ahead, you behind, whatever. But going for it on fourth and three from your own 32 is no, you know, no gimme decision. Come on. 
Oh, I'm not saying it's an easy decision. I'm not saying it's obvious. But what I'm saying is when you consider the broader circumstances of the game, number one, number one, you should have been up 17 or 21 at halftime. It shouldn't have been 24 to 14. You should have delivered the knockout punch to Patrick Mahomes and company when you could. Number two, Mahomes and company come out to start the half with a 10-play, 75-yard drive that tells you, even though you thought maybe he had aggravated the ankle injury and wasn't going to be the same guy, he was still going to be highly effective. And that Chiefs offense had emerged from its slumber. So then, after you have your long drive that almost began with disaster, but the play was rightly overturned because it wasn't a catch before it was a fumble that was returned for a touchdown, you cap it with a field goal, And the Chiefs go nine plays, 75 yards, 150 yards, back-to-back drives. The Kraken had been released that was the Kansas City offense. Why are you giving the ball back to them? That's part of this, too. Set aside the 65-yard punt return. I'm very confident that the Chiefs would have driven the ball down the field and scored anyway leaving the Eagles with less time to match it and get the two-point conversion to tie it at 35. The Chiefs were awake. Those are all the things you got to process, and I'm not saying this is easy. There's a lot of stuff you got to process in real time while you're on the sideline in a 67,000-person arena, 100 million-plus watching. you got to make these decisions in 30-second increments. It's not easy. What I'm fascinated by is the lessons to be taken from it and how it may further refine the thinking of coaches when they're in those moments. Because the best coaches, Peter, and you know this, they don't simply learn from their own mistakes. They are constantly paying attention to the experiences of all other coaches processing what would I have done, and more importantly, if I'm ever in a situation like that, What would I do? Because the more you think about it ahead of time, the more you can access it when it's time to make a decision like that of your own. See, you're absolutely right, Mike. But I guess my point is I don't think necessarily that that Nick Sirianni made a mistake on what his decisions were. And you're right. Uh, There's a there's we it's easy to to argue and contend that Philadelphia should have been up more. And look, I the, no more reason to think that than on the play when obviously Isaac Sumalo, the right guard, uh, has a flinch for a false start, a little bit more than a flinch. And now instead of an easy push the pile fourth and two feet to get a first down, it's now fourth and five plus. And, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's a totally different situation. And then instead of basically, you know, if you look at it this way, Mike, instead of being up either, let's say, you know, 17 to seven or 21 to seven, then the game is tied, you know, a few plays later. So I just sort of look at this, Mike, and I look at, all sorts of plays that happen in the course of the game. But it isn't the biggest plays in this game unless we talk about uh, the the defensive coaches on the Eagles and something that they didn't do late in the game on the Tony and Sky Moore touchdowns, okay? Uh, You know, uh, players 
have to make the plays that they're put on the field to make. And so when there's a false start on fourth and two feet that makes the fourth down uh, it much, much harder to earn, that's on the player. Okay, When they don't cover the guys in the secondary the way they should, that's on the player. When the On the players. When the punter kicks or boots a, a high school punt and maybe a high school JV punt, when he makes a high school punt in a Super Bowl game, that's not on Nick Sirianni. That's on the punter. Now, it might be on Nick Sirianni for not having Brett Kern active. However, all I'm saying is that players in these positions have to make plays. And there were a lot of times Sunday that the Eagles did not make the plays. And, you know, this reminds me of a conversation Sims and I had 11 days ago, the first day of Super Bowl week, when you can actually talk about the game because there isn't an endless stream of, of guests, which we, which we enjoyed. But Monday, there isn't much happening, so you're delving into the upcoming Super Bowl. And one of the points Chris made that I repeated every chance I could all week long, you have a Chiefs team that has dealt with adversity, that has had to fight through tough situations, hard-fought battles, whether it's over the Bengals, even the Jaguars, that wasn't easy, especially with Mahomes truly hopping around on one leg. The Eagles had had it easy. The Eagles hadn't been in these kinds of situations where you have to make tough decisions in real time. When everything comes easily for a football team, Peter, that complicates everything. You're used to your players executing properly you don't have to make these tough decisions by the time you get to the late third quarter the toughest decision is how long do I leave my starters in this blowout and I think that's part of it too when you get to the biggest stage and you haven't been put through these tough positions where you've really got to think it through you've got to make a tough decision you've got to factor in the reality that this opponent you're playing is better than what you've faced and maybe your players won't be able to execute the plan the way they'd like to because the guys on the other side are better than what you've seen that's that's what makes it more of a challenge for a guy who's only in his second year as a head coach yeah but I guess I would just say that I don't I can't think of a lot of instances in this game that even with Mike we've had 4 or 5 days now to think about it and to consider everything. I can't look at a decision that Nick Sirianni made that I say that was a bad decision. I mean, the only thing that you might think about is going for that field goal that you talked about earlier. But the rest of these plays that happened Players have to make them, and they didn't. And I just want to clarify one thing, because what I said a minute ago was a little bit gobbledygooked. But I do want people to understand exactly what happened when uh, Isaac Sumalo had the false start uh, early in the second quarter. Just understand this. Philadelphia is ahead 14-7. to Okay, there's 10 minutes left in the second quarter. And it's fourth and two feet at the, uh, let me be exact. It is it was third. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's third. It's third and two feet at the, at the Kansas City 47. Okay. So probably, Mike, probably you're in four down territory if you don't make it on third down. But anyway, Isaac Sumalo, uh, you know, false starts. So now, you know, 
The next play, Jalen Hurts fumbles. It's returned by Nick Bolton for a touchdown. And now a 14-7 game has become a 14-14 game. And my point was, if he doesn't false start on that, they're going to make one yard in the next two plays. They they are. No one, no one can argue Absolutely. against that. So, Absolutely. So after that, after that, in my opinion, and I know you're, you know, we're 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 taking some things for granted. Philadelphia is either going to get a touchdown or a field goal after that play. All right. So let's just say, let's say they get a field goal. Then it's 17 to 7, and they're kicking off. As it is, as it is, it's 14 to 14. And even though Philadelphia got 10 points down the stretch and made it a 24-14 game, and even though Patrick Mahomes went into the long halftime with an ankle sprain, they were getting the ball on the first drive of the, of the second half. And if they score, all of a sudden, it's a three-point game. So you can look back at a lot of plays in the game. That play has been forgotten. It should not be forgotten. Because instead of being up 17 to 7 or 21 to 7 with at least two more possessions in the second quarter, okay, the Philadelphia Eagles are now tied at 14, getting the kickoff and starting at ground zero, even though they have controlled much of the first 22 minutes of the game. Well, in the first half of the game, the time of possession was all out of whack. The Chiefs were under eight minutes for possession in the first half, for crying out loud. And look, Peter, we saw this in the divisional round win over the Giants, and we saw it in the championship round win over the 49ers. It's the precursor to the backbreaker. That's what that drive was. It wouldn't have been the backbreaker. But 21-7 or 17-7, extra pressure on the Chiefs. If they don't do something now, the next Eagles drive is the see-you-later, backbreaker, garbage time, second half, we've kicked your ass, and we could do it even worse if we didn't call the dogs off drive. They were moving in that direction, and it felt inevitable. The whole week, my son was saying the Eagles are going to win this game 31-17, to and you know what? If that Isaac Somalo doesn't do the flinch, and when you said flinch earlier, it made me think of the moil that Elaine found in the Yellow Pages, who flinched. I, <laughs> But if he doesn't do that, the final score may have been 31-17. That may have been the track that we were on, and you're right. That moment Far more consequential because what did it lead to? Jalen Hurts in an effort to switch the ball from the left hand to the right hand because he was unexpectedly dealing with Nick Bolton in his face, possibly knocking the ball out, dropping the ball, and then Hurts kicks it accidentally, and Bolton's able to scoop it up and turn it into a touchdown. That was the holy crap, we got a football game moment. Even though after that, the Eagles took that 10-point lead, it was different because, as you said, that's when the Chiefs were able to cut it to three. That first drive of the third quarter was critical to the outcome of the game. The Chiefs desperately needed that touchdown. Andy Reid said this week he took full advantage of the 25-minute halftime to make the adjustments necessary. They got the offense ready to go, and they understood Let's get a touchdown here 
and then all of a sudden it's a three-point game, and it shouldn't be a three-point game. It shouldn't have been a 10-point game at the half, and it definitely shouldn't have been a three-point game after the first drive of the second half, and that's what I think. You know, everything after that's details. It felt like the red tidal wave was ready to swarm over the Eagles, and however it happened, it, it just developed a sense of inevitability after that first drive of the second half. Around any corner... Within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons, all hand-picked from family farms, then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. I'm glad we've spent the first 30 minutes of this show today and we have not once mentioned the, uh, you know, the jersey tugging by James Bradbury. Um, Because the one thing I, I thought a lot about, Mike, Monday and Tuesday is, okay, so James Bradbury admitted it was, uh, uh, you know, that he held and restricted Juju Smith-Schuster. The officials obviously are going to say that. Um, Every analyst, I was on with Rich Eisen the other day, everybody says, yes, he did it. But was it ticky-tack? Yes, of course it was ticky-tack. But the point is, it was a foul. And you have to ask yourself, if a guard had flinched on that same play and everybody sees it and replays see it and it was a flinch that didn't affect the play, let me ask you a question. Would analysts be screaming that, oh my God, they missed a false start, that should have been a penalty? Yes, they would have been. And my point is that there isn't a separate set of rules for the final two minutes of the game versus the first 58 minutes. It's not an NBA playoff game. It is a football game. And if you see something, if you see a jersey grab, which obviously the field judge saw in that particular case, if you see a jersey grab, you got to throw the flag, period. I just don't have any sympathy, empathy, anything for anybody who is still harping on that five days after the fact. Yeah, we agree on that 100%, Peter. That's something Coach Dungey pointed out yesterday. The idea that they were told back in 2003, you have that jersey grab, it's getting called. If the official sees it, it's getting called. And those jerseys are tight. 
Those jerseys are not easy to stretch. Yeah. The undershirt that you'll see get pulled five feet from time to time, that stretches. That, to, to, to make that jersey stretch, you're applying force to it, and you're restricting the guy. Even if it doesn't look like it, you're restricting him. He's trying to run away from you, but you're restricting him with that pull. And here's the other thing before we move forward. This is a fascinating question that Coach Dungey raised as well. If Juju Smith-Schuster had gotten free, and if the ball hadn't been overthrown, and I don't want to say that in a pejorative way because the receiver's not where he was supposed to be potentially, so it really wasn't overthrown. But if he catches the ball for a touchdown and there's defensive holding, do you decline it or do you accept it if you're Andy Reid? The smart move would have been to accept it in that moment, though, and I don't think this ever happens, taking a touchdown off the board. What would Andy Reid have done, Peter? That would have been one hell of a dilemma for him because you want to continue to keep the ball, control the clock, and leave the Eagles with nothing. It would have been 148 to play, up seven. Man, that would have been a tough decision. And the the easy one is take the seven. The harder one is keep the ball. I think he would have taken the the play. Uh, I, I just... I don't think I just don't think that Andy Reid would have said at that moment um we will decline a 7 point lead with a minute whatever it would have been a minute 45 to go by the time Philadelphia got the ball or or what maybe a minute 50 and one timeout. I don't know that. I, I mean who knows. But I my gut feeling is he would have taken the points. Well, the fact that they were thrown for the end zone shows they were trying to get the points. Now, that may have been an audible. It may have been a freelance. It may have been Patrick Mahomes saw something and he took a chance. But they did throw for the end zone on that play. So they were trying to get the seven and they were content to go back out on the field and play defense. That's something Steve Spagnuolo said earlier this week on CBS Sports Radio. He had mixed feelings about Jarek McKinnon taking a knee at the two when they were clearly working the clock down for the game-winning field goal because as a defensive coach, he wanted his guys to close out the Super Bowl and he had confidence that they would. He may have been the only one who had confidence that they would after the drive where we saw the Eagles go right down the field and get the two-pointer and tie it at 35. Now, the NFL should be very happy, Peter, that... There is so much grist for conversation as it relates to the jersey tug, as it relates to the fourth down decisions, because that pushes farther down the stack of talking points, the piss poor condition of the field, which is an embarrassment to everyone associated with the game, that the field was an ice skating rink, the Super Bowl field. This new grass that they were thumping their chests about did not perform. Here's Harry Roseman, GM of the Eagles from yesterday when he was asked about the condition of the playing surface at Super Bowl 57. Howie, I know you guys don't want to make excuses, but when you look at the field condition, what's the organizational take on that? Is there uh, any recourse you have with the league? Um, where do you go with that? Both teams played on the same field. I mean, obviously your edge rushers were... You know, it's a big strength of this team. and Both teams play on the same field. Look, I know these questions get asked in real time. I'd love to know what recourse with the league there would even be. Well, there's nothing you can do. All you can do is complain about it. And the Eagles, to their credit, Peter, they've taken the high road every step of the way. And maybe they understand they that have, we'll just let yeah. others do the complaining for us. But whether it's James Bradbury admitting that he held 
whether it's, as you said earlier, Nick Sirianni not throwing anyone under the bus, Harry Roseman not complaining about the field conditions, even though it probably did take some of the steam out of their edge rushers, no sacks, a team that could have set the all-time record for regular season and postseason combined sacks, breaking the mark set by the 85 Bears. Are you kidding me? To get no sacks when the field was not ideal, to put it as mildly as possible. I respect the Eagles for not making a bigger deal about it because they easily could have been shouting from the rooftops that they got screwed by this playing condition at State Farm Stadium. But Howie Roseman's exactly right. I would have thought, yes, he was he was a big man to not make a big deal of it. But in the fact is that, uh, you, you know, if you are if you're Frank Clark, you can say the exact same thing that Hassan Reddick says. You know, he, he's a he's a now he's a bigger physical person, but Frank Clark's a speed rusher too. Uh, Hassan Reddick's a speed rusher, so obviously they're going to be affected. And somebody told me this after the game in the Kansas City locker room that just because for the second half fewer people slipped. What that is a result of is a lot of the players who have speed putting on the longer cleats. And when you put on the longer cleats, what it does is it makes you slightly slower because your cleat is digging into the turf a little more deeply so it can make sure that you grab. And when you try to turn a corner, you can turn a corner. But because you're digging a little bit more deeply, you're not going to be able to get around the edge with the same speed as you could with the smaller cleats. And I know that that's a very technical thing, but the fact is that both teams are going to have the same difficulty and both teams have speed players who are disadvantaged by the condition of the field. I would love to know, and even though I was in a scrum around them post-game, I'd love to know if Kadarius Tony changed his cleats at halftime or at some point during the game. Because on both his... Did you notice, by the way, Mike, on the NFL Films uh, version, the highlight that they tweeted out of the Kadarius Tony touchdown, that Jason Kelsey, or Travis Kelsey, excuse me, said to him, control, control right before the snap of the ball. And I think, now that I think of it, what what I believe is, hey, listen, don't slip. You know, if even if you have to give up a little bit of your speed, stay under control. And obviously he did. But I think that it, it's exactly the same for both teams. So anybody crying about it, I don't mind crying about it, but don't say it, it was a difference in the game because both teams had the same disadvantage. I disagree, though. If one team's pass rush is decidedly better than the other and one team's offensive line, the Eagles, better than the other, the net difference is greater for the Eagles. It takes more away from the Eagles. Like, if you're the Chiefs and say, okay, you know what? We're In this game, in this game, we're going to outlaw all quarterback sacks. There will be no quarterback sacks in this game. The Chiefs would have taken that 100 out of 100 times. And the Eagles would have said, no, 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 no. This is one of our strengths. So the slippery field took away one of their strengths. It neutralized and wiped out and made a wash 
the two pass rushes, or at least it affected it. So I think it did hurt the Eagles, and I think that makes it even more honorable that Howie Roseman didn't complain about it when he could have, because he could have said what I just said. Hey, look, our pass rush was on an historic pace, and it had its, its wings clipped by this field condition. They couldn't get around the edge. They couldn't plant. And the other point you made about control, that's the, uh, players have enough to worry about. So on top of everything else, they have to be conscious of their footing. They have to think about something they ordinarily take for granted when they're otherwise processing everything they have to do. And Kadarius Tony was able to pull it off in that moment, maybe thanks to the reminder he got from Travis Kelsey. But you shouldn't have a situation in a Super Bowl when you're not playing in the elements, where weather isn't a factor, where there should it should be as pristine as any football field is ever going to be. You should not have the players in that game distracted in any way, shape, or form by having to consciously think. I need to make sure I don't slip on this field. That that's that that's unacceptable. It's smart that Travis Kelsey said what he said. It's unacceptable that he had to. Well, okay, so it's unacceptable. What are you going to do? Stop the game and say, "Hey, we're no, not playing under not, these no. circumstances." No, no, you're no, not. But, Just but, but play Peter, the game. You can expect the, the NFL game. to do more. You can expect them in the future, and should have fairly expected them for that game. I mean, are you kidding me? The ultimate sporting event in America, which is creeping up worldwide, is a bigger and bigger deal. They're going to have that embarrassment of a football field, and and again. To make the point that I made when we started down this path, they have to be loving it at 345 Park Avenue that we're talking about James Bradbury, Nick Sirianni, Kadarius Tony, and everything but the crappy field conditions. And I would have said the other word if we weren't live on Sky right now. That's the, and 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 I, I we shouldn't just shrug about it because you know what if we just shrug about it it's going to happen again. We on behalf of the fans need to be pissed off about it, shouting about it, so it doesn't happen in Super Bowl fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty, sixty one, sixty two. None of us should have to deal with that. The players shouldn't, the coaches shouldn't, the fans shouldn't. It should always be perfect in the Super Bowl. It shouldn't be a factor in the Super Bowl. It shouldn't be a factor in any game, really. I mean, I thought we were at the point where we had figured this stuff out. So. I, I again. Well, it, I, I would just they, say they, this. They, I would it, just say it this. should have been the it should have been all the a of, number one subject coming out of the game. All of everything that you say is true, but once you're in the middle of the game, what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything. I know. But look, I know. And, but but listen, Mike. Like Mike, I will. I will. Of course, the NFL is happy. There's these other bright shiny objects to deflect from uh, a horrible job done. By and again, look. I know that there's all these legendary stories done by about George Toma, the sod god, and all that other stuff. But look, George Toma's role—I I wouldn't necessarily call it a ceremonial role—but that's in essence what it is right now. He's not getting down and dirty, and and he's not out growing the grass in Arizona, where this grass, this sort of hybrid, quote, perfect grass you know, that they got in partnership, I guess, with the PGA to some degree, uh, was grown and developed and installed two weeks before the game. Someone is going to get to the bottom of why it was the worst field I've ever seen in a Super Bowl. Uh, but but again, I hope so. once, once you're out there, you know, you just got to play in the game. And the time to raise hell about the field 
obviously you want to raise hell when you see that it makes it a less competitive game or or a lesser game, which it did. Okay, but by that time, you do just have to play the game. Well, here's hoping it doesn't get swept under the rug and forgotten and just part of the chatter that it stays at top of mind, that somebody does get to the bottom of it, and we expect more from the NFL. The NFL expects plenty from all of us as it relates to our time, our attention, our focus, our commitment. I think it's reasonable to expect from the NFL a field that isn't an ice skating rink in the middle of the desert for the biggest game of the year. Okay, other Eagles issues. Both of their coordinators are gone. One of them in Arizona, Jonathan Gannon, the defensive coordinator. The other, Shane Steichen in Indianapolis. The offensive coordinator is the head coach of the Colts. Now, here's Nick Sirianni from yesterday regarding who will call the plays when 2023 rolls around, even though Sirianni is an offensive guy himself. Here he is. No matter who the new offensive coordinator, whether it's Brian or someone else, will you continue to not call? Will you have that guy call the plays? Do you like the setup? I do. I do. It really it does help me manage the, the game better, in my opinion. Uh, it helps me interact with the players more, um, you know, um, on the sideline, right? And, you know, it helps me be able to discuss something that, you know, that, you know, with somebody upstairs, um, to get on the defensive headset when an offense is up, vice versa, um, you know, and so I, I yes, that will be my intent um, to let the next offense coordinator call the game. Um, and again, I feel like we've seen benefits from that. Again, I just feel like my ability to manage the game. Um, I feel like I do a better job managing the game when I don't have the, you know, and some guys do it and they do a great job of it. And I'm highly impressed by that. It's for me, that's what works is this and, and I'll continue doing it that way. Um, that's the plan. I like the explanation. I like the idea. Coaches on game day are big picture guys, and we've seen yeah. coaches struggle in the past with the micro of calling plays and the macro of running a team. And if you have an offensive coordinator, you trust to call the plays. Now, look, the head coach still is in a position to veto whatever play he happens to hear in his headset. If he changes his mind or if he just disagrees or if it goes against whatever they were planning in advance of the game. But the grind in play uh, one at a time, let the offensive coordinator do it. Even if you're an offensive guy, I think that makes a ton of sense. So I respect that. He mentioned Brian. I think it was in the question. The word Brian came up. That's Brian Johnson, quarterback's coach. He, he has helped Jalen Hurts become a better player. That's what Sirianni said yesterday. And this is great. Brian Johnson played for Jalen Hurts' father in high school. So there are plenty of reasons for Brian yeah. Johnson to further that relationship. And that's what's so important, that quarterback and whoever is the one calling the plays and working directly with the quarterback the most. That's a critical job. And it sets Brian Johnson up to become a head coach at some point down the road, too. Well, I remember early this year when the Eagles were on fire, I remember somebody uh, close to the Eagles organization told me the single best coach on our staff is Brian Johnson. And the reason is I think people love the fact that, first of all, he is a former college quarterback. And it, it, so he's played the position. He knows the position. 
not only does he know Jalen Hurts, but he's an extremely imaginative person. And he will, I think, take another step with this offense and and create new things in this offense that will play to the strengths of Jalen Hurts. And I think there's very little doubt he's going to be the guy, Mike. Um, the big question is, who's going to take over on defense? You know, will it be in-house? Could it be, say, a Vance Joseph type? Could it be somebody from the outside? But to me, I think it would be very surprising if the offensive coordinator was not Brian Johnson. And as it relates to the defensive scheme, Sirianni said that he's not opposed to changing the way things are done, but obviously that's going to be one of the factors in the final decision-making process. Now, maybe a coordinator candidate can convince Sirianni to make adjustments, but when you have the players for the scheme that you've already used and you've coached it and they understand it, you better have a good reason to make a dramatic change to the way things have worked because, but for the fact that the field was crap, the defense is far from broken. It's one of the big strengths of the team, and the Eagles are one of the most balanced teams in football. Now, one thing knocking the team out of balance is that Jalen Hurts was far better than anyone expected in 2023 or 2022, excuse me, including the Eagles, I believe. I don't think they expected Hurts to become as good as he was, and now he's eligible for a contract. Here's Howie Roseman talking about the challenge of paying Jalen Hurts at some point before next year because he wasn't a first-round pick. He's only under contract for one more season. Here's Howie. Yeah, I think um, obviously we want to keep our our best players here for the long term, and um, he's certainly one of our best players. So um, that's something we'll we'll keep all the contract talks internal, but um, we definitely would like to keep Jalen Hurts here long term. I mean, given the, the magnitude of that deal, though, um, would you like to understand what that's going to look like before you can go forward with the rest of the offseason? Yeah, I think um, we have a good sense of what we need to do here. Um, we have a little bit of time here, too, to kind of figure it out and, and get away and discuss that. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the most important thing is keeping our, our best players here. And, um, you know, Jalen's uh, certainly one of our best players. The other reality, Peter, keeping the best players there, but also making sure there's enough cap space left to go around to augment the roster. And Jalen Hurts is a guy who is committed to winning. Sims and I talked about this yesterday. It puts players in a very tough position because I'm a firm believer they should get every last penny they can while they can. There's a limited window of their lives that someone will pay them significant money to play football. It can go away in the blink of an eye. They don't have equity. But the other side of it is... If you take too much, you make it harder for the team to be competitive and you make it harder for yourself to build a legacy beyond however much money is in your bank account when it's all said and done. It is not an easy spot for players to be in, especially when the fans are inclined to line up if push comes to shove behind the billionaires, not behind the players. You know, I think the biggest question that the Eagles have, um, I, I was surprised looking at their cap list for 2023 it's not terrible (laughs) you know what i mean mike it's not you don't have a bunch of really bloated terrible contracts that you have to deal with look i think the two things that you're going to have to deal with i want you to think of two players so this coming season darius slay will be 32 
turns 33 on New Year's Day of next year. And uh, Brandon Graham is going to be 35 next year. Okay, and those two guys together, their cap numbers together, uh, you know, combined are $36 million. So I think one of the things you're going to see is you're going to have to, in my opinion, you're going to have to redo Darius Slay's deal. I think he is a keeper for at least a couple more years. And Brandon Graham, I think that is going to be a real tough decision for this team because, you know, he's given them, I think, 13 seasons. And he's been excellent. And by all accounts, he is one of the most perfect guys that's ever been in an Eagles locker room. Team guy, uh, you know, totally unselfish. He's okay now if he only plays 12 to 15 snaps a game, which is what some parts of this year he was doing. So the only thing I'm saying is that Howie Roseman knows that he's got to pay his quarterback and he's probably got to give some people haircuts or they're going to have to part ways with some veteran guys. So those are going to be the tough decisions he has to make. But the two guys I would keep in mind uh, would be Darius Slay and Brandon Graham, just because I think that it's going to be hard next year to have them on the roster at that at, at their at the current money. And beyond dealing with any cap numbers that may be bloated, they've got 20 guys due to become unrestricted free agents. Several starters, Miles Sanders, for example, Kaiser White, who was a force of nature at times in Super Bowl 57, James Bradbury, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, guy they traded for before the season with the Saints. He's due to hit the market. Robert Quinn, remember they did that deadline almost deal with the Bears for him. He didn't do nearly as much as we had expected. He becomes a free agent. They've got to figure some things out. They're going to have some changes. And this is where the pressure is on Howie Roseman and the rest of the organization to make your draft picks count, get good players, and develop them. I've been trying to change the discussion just a little bit. It's not just drafting. It's draft and develop. Because, you know, you draft a guy and he becomes a bust. Well, is it his fault or is it your fault for not developing him? The best organizations draft the right players and know how to develop them into key contributors. That's something the Eagles are going to need to do, Peter, especially if Jalen Hurts is going to get a massive contract. I've seen people suggest in excess of $45 million a year which would be mind-boggling. A year ago, I was saying, hey, Hurts may be the perfect quarterback for the Eagles because maybe you could get him for $30 million and have a team around him of you know several highly paid guys. Well, not now. Not after what he did in 2022. They're going to have a little bit of a predicament here to figure out what's fair for him and what to do with everything that's left over. You know, my gut feeling is probably the guy who's going to get rich on the Eagles somewhere is Javon Hargrave. Um, You know, he had a very, very good year. He had a really impactful playoff, uh, you know, three playoff games for Philadelphia. Somebody's going to pay him 12, 15 million a year, I think, Mike. And I doubt sincerely it's going to be the Eagles. Eagles love the guy, but I agree with you. I think one of the strengths of Howie Roseman is going out to find people like Javon Hargrave and you know going out to find other guys who were lesser lights somewhere else who he thinks can fit an absolutely defined role in Philadelphia. 
So I think Javon Hargrave gets rich somewhere. And of all the other guys, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with Kaiser White. Because to me, he's a classic case of he fit great into that system. And when he came to Philadelphia, there was no, you know, no buzz about that signing. You have to decide if he is what he was with the Chargers or if he is what he is with the Philadelphia Eagles. And then the last guy, look, I think James Bradbury is one of the best cornerbacks in football, period. He was an all-pro guy for me this year. I think he's a tremendous football player, really valuable to a team, total team guy, and I think he's probably going to make a lot of money somewhere as well. In the run-up to the Super Bowl, Debo Samuel actually referred to him as trash, and I suspect that's an insult. I don't know. But uh, we'll see if the other teams out there agree, if the Eagles allow Bradbury to get to the open market. Jason Kelsey also may retire. There may be some real transition for the Eagles, but you build around your great players. A.J. Brown is one. They paid him last year when they traded for him. Jalen Hurts another, and they have many, many more. Let's go ahead and take a break. This has been a week of one-hour opening segments, except for yesterday when we had technical issues. We have made it nearly a full hour. And one of the things that confounds me at time to time about the NFL, these very long, convoluted play calls with all the words and the numbers and the letters, and it makes you feel dumb. Well, the most impactful play in Super Bowl 57 was called in two words. We'll break down corndog when PFT Live continues right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 